y'all. Well, hello there. And welcome back to yet another beautiful episode of Beauty and the Scream. Yes, yes, yes. Um, this is Emily. And this is Jennifer. And we are on our very first episode of season six. Yeah, buddy. Episode 61. Yes. If you will. Um, yeah. I'm really, really We've been doing this for, what, two and a half years now? Or something like that? Close? Yeah. It's crazy. Yes. That means there's lots of content. From lots of listening to us go on and on about scary or creepy things. Yes. My favorite. Mm. My favorite thing. I actually tried to keep it light, though, a couple days ago when I came over here and we watched Ever After with Drew Barrymore, and then we watched A Knight's Tale with my man, well, your man, technically. Heath Ledger. R.I.P. Beautiful, beautiful man. I will never forget. Do you remember that video that there was of that lady who was, like, saw Heath Ledger at that, like... I don't know if it was at a hotel or where she was, but she was, like, freaking out that she saw him, and he came over and kissed her on the mouth, and she, like, literally, like, dropped to the ground, and she's just like... <laughs> that would have been you. Oh, my God. I would have been like, I just became pregnant. <laughs> you have to marry me now. I'm having your child. You just impregnated me. <laughs> With your tongue. <laughs> but, yeah. But then... Was it the same night or was it a different night? It was the same night because I was like, I've kept it light all day, but now I kind of want to watch something scary. Let me tell you guys, this movie that Emily played was fucked up. So it's newer. I think it came out last year. I'd already seen it once before I watched it with Garrett, but um, it was called Unhinged. Oh my God. With Russell Crowe. And, like, his character in the whole movie doesn't have a name. He's just crazy. But he's a fucked up dude. He's just killing people left and right. Yep. Like, <sighs> How he blew... The, I watched a cop's... I mean, I know it's not real. It's a movie. But I watched a cop's body blow up and it looked like spaghetti flying everywhere. It okay, was disgusting. So when me and Garrett watched that scene together where he was hit by... It was a semi, wasn't it, mm -hmm. that hit him? And I said it was like an explosion of blood. Like, it looked like the blood just exploded into the air. And he, like, rewound it twice, and he's like, I don't see it. But I bet on your big-ass TV. Dude, it literally looked like there was, like, meat sauce <laughs> soaring through the air. <laughs> meat sauce soaring through the air. Oh, my God. But, like, I wasn't expecting that. Like, the car turned sideways, and I was watching it, and I was like, oh, shit. And then all of a sudden, that truck hit it, and his Boom. body blew up, and David and I were both like, oh, my God. Yeah, that movie's fucking wild. Makes you think. Yeah. Because the whole movie, I guess maybe we could, like, get, like, a pretense of what the movie's about. Yeah, I guess, yeah. It's basically about road rage. To be honest. Well, like, Simplest okay, form. so Russell Crowe's character, like, in the beginning, it shows him going into this lady's house and, like, beating them up and, like, setting the house on fire. Mm -hmm. Well, then you hear him talking on the radio about how, like, this guy had gone in and killed his ex-wife and her husband, but, like, we still don't know his name. And then 
just so happens that this lady who's like the lead character, I can't remember what her name is, her character's name, but she's taking her son to school and gets stuck behind him at a red light and then the light turns green and he doesn't move and she's like honking at him and he will not move. So she like goes around him, flies around him and like yells at him or flips him off, I think maybe. And when she goes around him and then he like f comes up behind her and then starts yelling at her and her son through the car window and like she refuses to apologize well then it turns into this huge ordeal where he's like fucking tracking her down all day long and like trying to ruin her day like he says he is going to make sure that she has like the worst day of her life he said oh my god he said she's, he said i'm gonna show you what a shitty day it is or something like yeah. that I don't know. It was literally, to me, it was like Joyride on steroids. Yeah, it was <laughs> like, It was worse by far. I mean, just because so much happens at one point in time. But I love that shit where it's like somebody's pissed off. And well, and like, he steals her phone and goes to lunch with her friend. Dude, that shit was fucked up when he... And then stabs him in the well, neck with a fucking fork. And the thing that you also realize is he's like super pissed... The reason he already doesn't like the friend is because he's a divorce lawyer. Yeah. And because that, like, goes into the beginning because his wife had left him. And when he breaks in the house, he's pretty sure he beats up the wife and the new man. Mm -hmm. like, and then douses the place in gasoline and lights that bitch up. Mm -hmm. But, um, no, so the way he just so boldly killed that guy in the restaurant, yeah. I was, like, clutching my pearls. I said, what? Well, and then, like, everybody, even when you guys were watching, you guys were, like, somebody just, like, do something? Yeah, like, anybody? nobody nobody did anything. Like, they were, some people had left, but then some people were sitting in their booths, like, videotaping him being a fucking psychopath after he'd busted a cup in that dude's face. Yeah. And then, like, smashed his face into the table. He fucked him up. Like, and I'm like, please, somebody, like, do something. The next thing you know, he's got a fork in the back of his neck. Like, oh, oh, and then he like, then he calls her and tells her, like, you need to pick somebody for me to go after, like, name somebody and like you're killed. Somebody. So then she picks this person that had like already ruined her day. Well, then he doesn't listen to her and he goes to her house and goes after her brother. Isn't that who she said? No, he gave, she had given brother's him his girlfriend. No, she had given him the name of that lady that had called and canceled her appointment. Oh. Had fired her that morning. And then come to find out the whole time he was able to find where she was because that damn tablet was in her car. Yes. Luckily it died, but... I was like, this kid needed to be with her the whole time. He's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was fucking insane. Um, we also watched another crazy movie that I don't think we've talked about on here yet. Um, Incident in a Ghost Land or Incident on a Ghost Land, that movie we watched with the girl. Oh, is that the one where she stayed behind Thanksgiving break or are you talking about a different one? No, that was Kara. Or... Oh, that was Christy. Christy. That's what it was. That was Christy, which that one was crazy also. But um, no, I'm talking about the one... With the two, the two sisters and their mom, where they're at the house and those guys break in with oh. that, like, candy truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really was weird. Yeah. 
If you haven't watched it, I'm pretty sure it's available on Netflix and on Amazon Prime. But I thought it was a really good movie. And it, it mind fucks you the whole time. Because it's like going back and forth, like what you think is like present and past, but like. Yeah, yeah, I'd seen it pop up a lot and I'd never like given it a chance. And then I actually watched it and I was like, this is a really good movie. I'm upset with myself for not just giving it a chance a while ago. But yeah. here we are now and I've watched it and it is good. I've seen it now like three times. Emily would recommend. I'd probably give it out of five stars. I'd probably give it like a 3.5 only because, you know, like, I was going to say seven out of 10. So that works. Yeah. So it's about the same three and a half stars out of five. The acting could have been a little better, mm -hmm. but you know, the storyline was good. It kept you watching. Mm -hmm. Cause I was literally like, okay, what is happening? Holy shit, is she really, did she really not become this world-renowned author? Like, this was all in her motherfucking head, what? And I'm just like, no way. Yeah. Those are a couple movies that we watched mm -hmm. that we would recommend. Also, A Knight's Tale, if you haven't seen it, obviously watch it. Ever After, um, if you haven't seen it, watch it. I did it. watch a show that I'm trying to get Emily to watch. It's on Netflix. It's the... Woman across the street from the girl in the window. Oh, yeah. I need to watch it. I just... Like, I don't want to, like, spoil anything, but, like, it's good. Like, you keep, like, thinking that you've figured out, like, what's going on, but then they keep showing you things as you think you figured out that prove that what you think is not right, and so then you keep making more conclusions, and at the end, when you find out what really is going on, then it's like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. No, I really do want to watch it. I don't have um, internet at my apartment right now, so I haven't really been able to, like... I would be willing to watch it again with you. Like, it was good. Okay. I'm down. I will watch it. I'm down to watch it. Um, We also watched that show, that Doomsday show about that lady that killed her son and her daughter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, well, I don't know if she physically killed them. I think, I think either she did or her new husband did, but... Either way, she was a murdering-ass bitch. Mm -hmm. but. The thing that kills me is that, like, she just didn't answer questions. Like, they okay. can't hold me accountable if I don't say anything. So that everyone's on the same page as us. Who was this lady? We need to look it up. At one point, I knew, like, all the names. Remember the next day I was in here, I was like, and Chad, blah 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 da. Chad Daybell. Yes. That motherfucker. Um, so, Doomsday Dad Hearing Reveals Gruesome Fate of Missing Kids. Lori, Lori Vallow. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that bitch was crazy. But I don't want to give anything away about that, that to people that haven't heard about the story. But if you're into, like, true crime and just, like, feeling like, what the fuck? You watch that. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize how big of a case it had been. I didn't remember ever hearing about it. But I had said something to our little sister, Melissa, and she was like, that was, like, a huge thing, Emily. And I was like, 
Wow. Like, forgive me. Forgive me for not <laughs> staying updated on the times. Um, well, I watched a show the other day about the torso killer who was active in, like, New Jersey and um, New York City in, like, the 1970s. The torso killer? Yeah. Like, it took them a while to figure out who it was and what was going on because, like, there were crimes happening in New Jersey and there were crimes happening in New York, but, like, the police weren't talking to each other, like, because they're two different states. Um, and then when they were, um, I'm trying to remember how they caught him. They caught him in New Jersey and they were watching the news and, like, they'd already knew, like, what the person looked like that they were looking for in New York. Mm-hmm. And they saw him on the news getting caught in Jersey, so then that they were able to, like, after he got tried in Jersey, then move to New York to get tried there. <laughs> but, like, they thought when they were, like, taking him to trial that he'd killed, like, 12 people. But, no, it was, like, 80-some people. Because he, he said that he'd been killing somebody, like, every other week for, like, eight years or some shit like that. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Homie. I was listening to a podcast the other day while I was getting ready for work about, um, what was it, what was he called? The Ripper, uh, the Georgia Ripper? Now I'm second guessing myself. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the Atlanta Ripper, not the Georgia Ripper. Okay. But, um, it was basically, it's unsolved crime, so they never solved who the Atlanta Ripper was, but it was this guy during, like, was it Prohibition? Girl, if I could get on here and talk about something and know what I'm trying to talk about. (laughs) The Atlanta Ripper was an unidentified serial killer who is suspected of killing at least 15 Atlanta women in 1911 and 1912. And they were all black women. before the Prohibition. This is like... This before the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, and they were all black women... And the whole case was crazy. Like, I'd actually like to do deeper research into it. hmm Because, yeah. The whole case was just nuts. Like, these murders were going on, and the police were just, like, refusing to, like, do anything about it. Or, like, even put it in the papers and stuff like that. hmm It was uh, shitty. It's insane. But, well, it's like... Um, I was watching an episode of, um, uh, Dark History yesterday, and, uh, Bailey Sarian was talking about, um, like, the dark history of birth control, and they had gone to, like, Puerto Rico and were, like, forcing these women to try this new, like, form of, like, sterilization because they were, like, trying to limit their population, Mm-hmm. And we're forcing these ladies to try, like, their test of medicine, but they weren't telling them it. they were testing it on them. They just were making them take it. And all these ladies were, like, getting sick, and, like, some of them were dying and, like, had all these issues and stuff going on. And, like, nobody cared because they were women of color. Like, mm-hmm. it was shitty. Yeah. <sighs> History disgusts me. It does. It disgusts me, too. We have a lot of content for you guys today, like, a lot, so we're just gonna kinda jump into it. Yeah, Um, so before we do that, though, make sure you check out the PFPN. Yes, the Prescribed Films Podcast Network. 
You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. So I feel like before we start discussing the topic that we did for this week, we probably should give a um audio with like listener warning. I call it a trigger warning. <laughs> um a trigger warning, audio warning. Yeah. Um there's really like gruesome conversation about like murder and like children being murdered, children murdering, like and it's I mean, mine's pretty descriptive of what... Like, mine has a lot of child abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, um, and not to mention, like, the details of the murders that were committed. So, right, there's a lot of stuff. So we decided, like, we were talking about it, like, we wanted to put a warning out there first. So, like, if you think you'd be triggered by any of these things, you can just skip this one if you want. Or at least that way you're kind of prepared for it. So... right. Because without further further ado, I present, even though I basically have already said what our topic is, we are doing killer children. So, killer yes. kids. I started, like, I first typed out, like, children killers, but then I thought about the fact that it sounded like it was somebody who killed children. But no, these are children who kill people. Yeah. yeah. Children who have murdered, and... um. I think the thing is, shit like this, like, freaks me out because kids fucking scare the shit out of me. <laughs> I always have said, like, what, there was one movie, I don't know if it was The Omen or what movie it was, but it said something about how the devil would always come in the eyes of a child. And I have never forgotten that because kids do come across so innocent. So, like, you just don't think kids would be capable of, like, these catastrophic, like, right, just evil things. Well, and, like... Mine was so hard for me because a lot of the stuff that, like, this kid goes through is not the same as, like, things that we had to see and deal with, but, like, similar. And it just makes me think, like, we could have been murderers, dude. Like, well, I mean, obviously there's something there that's not able to process stuff correctly. Yeah, like... In mine, like, the kid that did all this stuff, like, she didn't have anybody, like. Right. She was pretty much on her own, so. So let's kill some people. Yes. Um. Of course, now I just revealed that mine's a girl, but here we go. (laughs) Well, okay. So, I picked the topic for the week, and I get to go first. Yes, ma'am. the fun thing here. Okay. So mine, I decided to do on, it's actually two children. So, but it's the same crime. Yeah, mine technically has two kids in it too, but. So, I did John Venables. Venables? Mm-hmm. John Venables. And Robert Thompson. Okay. So John Venables was born on August 13th, 1982. 
And I read several different stories about John's early life, so I'm going to tell the two most popular main versions that I read because I read a lot of different articles. Okay. So, basically, John was supposedly from a broken home in this one version, but his family was still, like, pretty close-knit. Like, his father was still very much involved in his life. Mm -hmm. His mother was still very much involved in his life. And there was really not much there besides the fact that the mom was, like, kind of... Okay, there was kind of stuff there. Supposedly, in this version, she was kind of verbally abusive and she drank a lot and did not spend a lot of time with her kids. Mm -hmm. But... Other than that, like, then there's this other version that I read where um, John was primarily raised by his mother, Susan Venables, and there were reports that when John's father had been a part of his life, he had been extremely abusive towards John and his siblings and his mother. There were also reports that his father had been sexually abusing all of them as well. Regardless, his parents actually ended up splitting up, and Susan becomes the sole support for John and his siblings. And then life didn't seem to get much better for him after his father left, though, even though I'm sure it's still approved to improved to some extent, not having someone, like, abusing you like that all the time. Mm -hmm. But then Susan started drinking very heavily and became an absentee parent in her ch children's lives. Um, and then she be got a reputation around town, and she was, quote, unquote, painted as a loose woman. Ooh. So basically, she was a hoe. Um. <laughs> basically, she was a garden tool. Yes. Throw her in the garden. She's a hoe. <laughs> oh, but no, throw her in the trash. She's a broken, worthless hoe. <laughs> so then we have Robert Thompson. Um, and he was born, like I said, on August 23rd, 1982. And I did not mention that the story takes place in Liverpool. Liverpool? Liverpool? Okay, that is. I think so. Okay. So Robert was the fifth of seven children, and when Robert was five years old, his father took off leaving his mother alone to care for their family, which I can only assume that this child was looking for attention where he could get it because not only being, like, the fifth of seven children and having two parents around, you still probably wouldn't get the attention that you needed mm. or felt like you wanted and then having only one parent there, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, following the same path as Susan, Robert's mother begins drinking heavily, and many reported that she was very frequently out at the Heiston Top Bar instead of being at home with her children. And then I read somewhere else that she had at one point attempted to commit suicide, but it was obviously a failed attempt, at least from what I know. Or at least from what I read. Um, so the two boys were in the same class, same school, um, and they became very good friends. So one would say, like, too close of friends, maybe. Yeah, definitely, after what I'm going to tell you about. So, um, so on February 12th of 1993, both of the boys decided that they wanted to play hooky from school. And they went to the New Strand Shopping Center in Liverpool. And... I googled so I could see pictures, and I was basically just like an indoor shopping mall, mm -hmm. like like what we would identify as like a two or three story shopping mall. So kind of like the Mall of America. <clears throat> no, it wasn't like huge, but so like the Brea Mall. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so the boys had a more sinister plan when they decided not to go to school that day. And they had discussed between the two of them how they intended to spend the day. So they had all these like dark things that they were talking about doing on top of they go to the shopping center and they're just like stealing shit. So they end up stealing. I'm trying to remember. They steal batteries. They steal some modeling paint. They steal. I feel like there was some more stuff, but anyway. So at 3:40 p.m., some duct tape, some rope, shovel. <laughs> at 3:40 p.m., CCTV footage caught the two boys inside of A.R. Tim's butcher shop. At the same time as Denise Bulger who was accompanied by her two-year-old son, James. Denise walked through the shop, holding onto her son's hand. She spoke with the butcher and went to check out, letting go of her son's hand for just long enough to pay for her purchases. When Denise went to take her son's hand again, that's when she realized he was not there. What she didn't know, but what the CCTV footage caught inside of the store, were two young men lurking around watching Denise and her son. So unaware at this point that the two boys taking her son are unaware at this point, the two boys had taken her son by the hand and led him out of the store and out of the mall. And the two boys were John Venables and Robert Thompson. So not only can I not imagine the panic that this woman was having, like literally I let go of my kid's hand for like two minutes like, yeah. and then he's just gone. But then also being that kid, like, being taken away from his parent, like, so. Like, I would have freaked out as a little kid if, like, I wasn't with somebody I knew. That's why I always say I don't know how I never got kidnapped because I just so willingly went with people. I was like, yo, yeah, I'll come to your tent. Yeah. <laughs> when we went camping. Yeah. And you disappeared, and it, mom was freaking out. Like, And I just, like, found this other family that I was, like, convinced was going to adopt me, and I was eating ham and mustard sandwiches in their tent with them. And I Because I remember her looking at me and being like, do not leave here in case she comes back. And I was like, okay. So I was just, like, sitting there at the picnic table, like, <laughs> waiting for mom to find you. <clears throat> I was laying down my roots, man. I was going to start a whole new life. <laughs> She's like, I found a new family. Damn it. Then my mom had to show up. <laughs> and all because of my fucking bike. My bike stood out like sore fucking thumb. Remember That's because that, you like, always had like tassels coming out of the handles. And, yeah, like, and I had um, that hot pink and lime green bicycle that yeah. Mike had painted for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Needless to say, I was in big trouble and I was grounded to my tent. <laughs> Remember when we, I mean, I know this is off topic, but remember when we went exploring with Jared and Jeremy and we found that, like, creek and, like, Jeremy crossed to the island? Didn't he? And that water was so cold. And wasn't that when Jeremy was skipping rocks and he hit Jared in the head? Yeah. Good times. So, anyway, back to the story. Sorry, it was a great distraction. So the boys led James about two and a half miles away to the Liverpool canals. So this is where the boys proceeded to drop James on his head, causing injuries to his face. The boys joked about pushing James into the canal, which obviously probably scared the shit out of this little boy. Like, not to mention, like, yeah. obviously, 
these strangers literally just dropped him on his face and John and Robert continue to just lead him across Liverpool after this where they encounter 38 witnesses. They found 38 people that came forward and said that they saw the three boys together walking across Liverpool. So there are 38 different people that saw the two boys with the little boy. Yeah, and out of 38 of those people, only two people approached them. Like, even questioned them. And these two 10-year-old boys were walking with a sobbing, crying 2-year-old with, like... I'm assuming, like, some kind of injury to his face from dropping him on his face. I want to think that, like, if I had run in... If I ever ran into, like two older kids and a little kid that, like, I would say something, but also, like, would you maybe just assume that they're, like, his brother or something? Right. Well, like, I guess, and that was the thing. So, for the two people that stopped them, they had two different stories. One was that it was their brother, and he'd gotten hurt, and they were taking him home, mm -hmm. and the other one was that he was lost, and he couldn't find his parents, and they were walking him to the police station. Okay. And, like, and they were headed in that direction to the police station. Mm. So, anyway. But again, no one really pressed too far once they gave those reasonings, and they just let the boys continue on their way. So, um, continuing walking, the boys stood looking at the police station. So, apparently, so they thought for a while, so apparently they were trying to, like, decide between, like, good and evil. Are we going to go just turn this boy in now, or are we going to, you know... Do something more fucked up. Well, they decided to go from bad to completely just, like, fucked up. And... It, like, because it's just fucked up. So, one of the boys... So, they lead... They actually lead James in the opposite direction of the police station to this old, um, old railway station that has been discontinued. So it doesn't run anymore. Mm -hmm. And they lead him on to the railroad tracks to, and this is where like they begin, like the whole attack begins. So one of the boys throw blue humbral modeling paint into James left eye, as I assume is like attempt to like blind him. Um, so this is when the boys begin kicking James, causing massive internal external wounds to the two-year-old boy. Um, and this isn't where the attack stops, though. The boys continue kicking and stomping on James, hitting him with rocks and other debris. And this is when the two boys get a 22-pound railroad fish plate, which if you Google it, which I could show you a picture, I guess, but it's basically like the big piece that all of the big bolts are like bolted to. So they pick up this 22 pound railroad fish plate and drop it on James's head. So, and then at this point there, I mean, I get, I guess they didn't realize that they didn't know whether he was dead or not, mm -hmm. but what, what they proceeded to do was he was not conscious anymore so they take debris from the train tracks, and after laying James's body across the railroad tracks, they covered him with as much debris as they could and tried to hide the body and hope that a train would hit it. And, like, that would be ruled as the cause of death, not... Not them beating him. Right. Um, and he did end up getting hit by a train, and his body was split in half. And oh my so God. James was missing with no idea of his location for two days. And on Valentine's Day, 1993, school kids were walking around the railroad tracks and discovered the scattered remains of James Bur Bulger. 
Oh my god. Um, so during this time, the police had low-resolution video images of James Bulger being abducted from the New Strand Shopping Center, and the boys were still unidentified. Mm-hmm. A woman contacted the police after seeing the enhanced photos of the two boys that had abducted James as she recognized John Venables, and she had been aware that he had played truant from school that day as well. Oh. <clears throat> so after this, the boys were arrested, the, and, like, the police, as I'm sure anybody would, would be in complete shock at, like, what the age of these boys was. Right. Because from the pictures they had from CCTV, they just identified that they were young men. Yeah, they don't like, know Like, they how couldn't they tell are. from it. It was so, like, just not good quality. Yeah, they could tell they weren't adults, but, like... And also, like, this is 93. It's not going to be good quality. Like... Yeah. So, um, the boys denied, so they're arrested, you know, police are fucking flabbergasted, and they're having to keep, with them being minors like that, they're having to keep their identities secret, away Mm -hmm. from the media. And the boys deny and deny that they had anything to do with it, but the DNA evidence came into play, and the boys both had James' blood on their shoes, and one of the boys had the exact same blue paint on his shoe that had been in James' eye. Um, the heel of one of the boys' shoe also matched a bruising form on James' cheek. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're denying it, but, like, boys, boys. We know. Like, like we, we ain't stupid. This is where, like, kids are dumb. Like, come on. I mean, l- let's be honest, like... Kids are real dumb. Like, for example, when I was about their age, I turned my door handle around on my door so that I could lock my room when I wasn't in it. Stupid. Because then Emily started locking me in my bedroom. Hmm. (laughs) So, kids are dumb. So, and this story, like, honestly just gets worse. So there had been suspicions by the police that there had been a sexual assault during the crime. As James' body had been found with his shoes, socks, and underwear removed, the police also found batteries in James' mouth and assumed there had been batteries inserted in his rectum as well, even though there were none in the body when it was found. Um, The pathologist's report that was read in court stated that the two-year-old's foreskin had been manipulated which also gave the impression of sexual assault. I'm not laughing, like, no, because it's, I'm just like, it's just so fucked up. Yeah. So James had suffered from so many injuries that pathologists were unable to identify which one had been the final blow that ended James' life. But they did know that he had been dead before he was hit by the train. So honestly, he could have maybe still been alive after they'd beat him and stuff. But, but when they left lane. him, yeah. he may have just died there, like bleeding internally. Poor baby. It a was... two-year-old is still a baby. Yeah. Like, um. So, like I said, they had to keep um John and Roberts' identities out of the media because of their age. So, only in the media, they were referred to as Child A and Child B. Um, but at the close of the trial, the judge ruled that their names should be released due to the nature of the murder and the public's reaction. 
Their identities were released along with lengthy, lengthy descriptions of their lives and backgrounds. After their identities were released, the parents of the two boys began receiving death threats from vigilantes, and they actually were moved to new locations in the country and given new identities. I mean, yeah, you're raising fucking Adolf surprises Hitler and Saddam Hussein. It surprises me, though, that they ended up releasing their names because my story happens before yours. And mine is the reason why, like, they weren't allowed to put the kids' names in the media. Because yours in the United States? No. Oh, it's not. Oh, I don't know. But, um, the full trial began at Preston Crown Court on November 1st, 1993. Trial was conducted as an adult trial, um, and the accused were in the dock, away from their parents and the judge and the court officials in legal regalia. The boys denied that. Oh yeah, and they had to literally put them on like booster things. Yeah, the, if they were tried, if they were tried as adults, that would be why. Cause they were put in the booster. They had to have like booster things in the docks because they were too short to like see over the over the railing. Mm-hmm. The boys denied the charges of murder, abduction, and attempted abduction because I completely forgot to mention. <laughs> Before the boys had successfully abducted James, they had attempted to abduct another two-year-old boy, but the mother had intervened in time before they were able to get him away from her. Um, The boys were placed in their raised chairs, like I said. During the trial, child psychiatrist Dr. Eileen Vizard testified that she believed with certainty that the boys were able to differentiate between right and wrong. Whether they knew that it was wrong to take a young child away from their mother and whether it was wrong to cause injury to that child. Both her and Dr. Susan Bailey from the home office forensic psychiatrist who had interviewed Venables and Dr. Vizard stated equivocally the boys knew the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. So on November 24th, 1993, the two boys who were now 11 years old were found guilty of James Bulger's murder becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. The judge, Mr. Justice Moreland, told Robert and John they had committed a crime of unparalleled evil and barbarity. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. 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 So, the judge sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure with a recommendation that they should be kept in custody for very, very many years to come. The judge recommended a minimum term minimum term of eight years, which does not seem very long to me, but shortly after the trial, Lord Taylor of Gosforth, the Lord Chief Justice, ordered that the two boys should serve a minimum of ten years, making them eligible for release in 2003. However... The Sun newspaper came forward with a petition that had been signed by nearly 280,000 people, giving it to the Home Secretary, Michael Howard, wanting to increase the time that both boys would remain in custody. The campaign ended up being a success, and in July of 1994, Howard announced that the boys would be kept in custody for a minimum of 15 years, meaning that they would not be considered for release until February of 2008, At that time, each of the boys would be 25 years old. Okay. But a whole bunch of shit goes down. I got so lost in trying to understand what all was happening, all these appeals, all the stuff that was going on. But eventually the boys are returned to their initial sentencing. 
and in January 2001, a six-month review began on the boys. At the end of this review, it was determined that the boys were no longer a threat to society and would be released from prison. Their terms of release included, they are not allowed to contact each other or the Bulgars family, they are prohibited from visiting the Merseyside region, curfews may be imposed on them, and they must report to probation officers. Breaches of those rules would make them liable to return to prison, and if they were deemed to be a risk to the public, they would also be returned to prison. So, they get out of prison in 2001. So, how old would that have made them? They went to 82. Jail in they were born in 82. Right? So, 21? No. 18? 92,000. So, it would have been like 19. 18 or 19, depending upon when the... Um, this was in... So, the, in January, a six-month <clears throat> review began. So, they their birthdays were in August. So, it would have been... 18? Yeah. So, 18. So, both of these guys were given new identities. And from how it sounds, they've done a pretty good job at concealing their new identities. Or at least one of them has. Um, but on March 2nd of 2010, John Venables was returned to prison for violating the rights of his release. And on July 23rd of 2010, Venables appeared at a court hearing at the Old Bailey and it was brought to the court that Venables had posed in an online chat room as a 35-year-old named Don Smith, or quote-unquote Donnie, a married woman from Liverpool who boasted about abusing her 8-year-old daughter in the hopes of obtaining further child pornography. So, John Venables had contacted his probation officer in February 2010, fearing that his new identity had been compromised at his place of work. When the officer arrived at his flat, Venables um, was attempting to remove or destroy the hard drive of his computer with a knife and a tin opener. The officer's suspicions were aroused and the computer was taken away for examination, leading to the discovery of child pornography which included children as young as two years old being raped by adults. Venable was eligible for parole in July two- 2011. On June 27, 2011, the parole board decided that Venables would remain in custody and that his parole would not be considered again for at least another year. He remained in custody for a while because they believed that John Venables would not be able to keep his identity a secret which would pose as a threat to him if people found out who he was and the crimes he committed. Mm -hmm. And then he was eventually eventually released, however, and given a new identity. But then on November 23rd of 2017, it was reported that John Venables had again been recalled to prison for possession of child sexual abuse imagery. He admitted being in possession of 392 Category A 148 Category B and 630 Category C child pornography images and was sentenced to three years and four months in prison. So in September 2020, he was denied parole. Only three years and whatever for having pictures of naked kids? Mm-hmm. And Gross. But on the plus side of the story, Robert Thompson seems to have kept his identity pretty got his shit together yeah because i couldn't really find anything about him which means he was probably led astray by his friend yeah (coughs) that's how i feel about it john venables was a little fucking trolleywog that's awful 
Bam, that's my story. The end. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna just jump right in. And I'm gonna tell you, Emily, that I was blissfully unaware as to how traumatic this was gonna end up being. <laughs> blissfully unaware. Um, but anyway, so we've already done a trigger warning, whatever. Um, but also for this story, we are going back to a time, um, in like the 1950s and 60s in England. Um, and it really wasn't that long after the, um, last world war had ended. And, you know, like in England had been bombed a lot by the Germans. So there was a lot of areas that were like rough and run down and yeah. whatever. Um, but during this time, like a lot of the area was very impoverished and it was customary for children as young as two years old to be playing outside by themselves. Parents were just like, fuck it, like go play. Pigahan. So, yeah. Um, and also like, because of all the bombings and things like these poor communities were starting to finally receive like some economic aid from the government. Um, but there were still a lot of old abandoned buildings that were being left vacant until they could be torn down and be replaced with new, like, updated housing and stuff. So, now that I've laid down a little bit of background, let's get on to my killer kid. Without further ado, Mary Bell was born on May 26th, 1957, in Newcastle, England. Her mother, Elizabeth Bell, who went by Betty was a known prostitute and was um, often not home. So Betty would frequently travel to Glasgow to work and would leave her children at home in the care of their father. Um, and Mary was Betty's middle child. So, like, Mary was you, essentially. Middle child syndrome. Yeah. So Mary's a middle child, and um, she was born when Mary was 17, or when Mary... She was born when Betty was 17 years old, um, and they're not sure who Mary's biological father really is, but she was raised by William Bell, who went by Billy, and Billy was an alcoholic, and when he drank, he would become quite violent. Um, and unfortunately for Mary, it appeared that her mother did not want her. Um, her aunt had said that when Mary was born, Betty had gotten mad at the hospital staff when they had tried to hand her her newborn baby and yelled at them, like, take that thing away from me. Wonderful. Yeah. So, as a baby, a toddler, and a young child, poor Mary frequently sustained injuries from accidents that occurred while, while alone with their mother, um, which made her mother's family believe that either she was being deliberately um, deliberately negligent or worse, intentionally tried to hurt or kill her daughter. So, um, on one occasion in 1960, when Mary was about three years old, her mother dropped her from a second-story window. What? Yeah, and then on another occasion, Betty had actually given her daughter... Um, like a handful of sleeping pills and then she ended up having like somebody had taken her to the hospital and she had to have her stomach pumped and mm -hmm. whatever um but I mean, then was was betty no not betty was mary like doing anything to make her feel like that or would she just not want her i think she just didn't want her 
Oh. Um, I mean, not that any child should, like, be treated that way, it doesn't, but I don't know. They she... don't really get into things that Mary does until, like, they're talking about, like, when she goes to school. Gotcha. So, um, okay. And then on another occasion, Betty actually sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have her own children. Oh, wow. So... Mary's older sister was like, mom, like, how could you do that? Like, and then her mom's like, well, then you better, you better go get her. Like, if that's, if you're upset, like, you better go get her. So her sister takes off across Newcastle alone. Like her, her sister's only like a year or two older than her. Like the age difference is small. And so she has to take off across Newcastle to go get her sister and get her brought home. So when her sister gets there to pick her up, this new mother had already bought Mary new clothes and several other things, and she did actually allow Mary to take with her, like, what she'd already bought. So, um, and it was believed that Betty had actually begun allowing and encouraging her clients to sexually abuse and sodomize Mary beginning in the middle of the 60s. So, like, Mary's, like, five years old and getting, like sexually abused by these clients of their, her mother's. So, um, however, despite all of this, Betty continuously refused to allow her family to take custody of Mary. So like Betty's sister, like different people kept being like, just let me take her. Like, let me take this kid from you. And she's like, no, absolutely not. She's my daughter. Like you can't have her. Psycho bitch. Yeah. So, um, so another thing, like, Mary grew up exhibiting, like, many signs of being troubled. So she would, um, she would have these, like, sudden and unpredictable mood swings. Like, she'd be laughing one second and having a good time and then, like, sobbing and then, like, she'd be yelling and mad and angry and then go back to being happy and whatever. So, like... And apparently, also, um, she suffered from chronic bedwetting. And apparently, she was very mistreated for this and would often hide it from her parents because her mother would rub her face in it and would constantly ridicule her for it. Damn. Yeah. Um, and then when Mary started going to school, she would get into trouble frequently for starting fights with other children and actually, during one playground scuffle, Mary actually attempted to shove sand down the throat of the girl that she was fighting. <laughs> Damn, Mary. <laughs> yeah. So, at this point, like, most children wanted nothing to do with Mary. Like, she would, they would literally, like, go out of their way to avoid her, so Mary really didn't have any friends. Like, the only friend she had was this girl named Norma Bell, who lived next door to her. Um, and... Literally, like, aside from the fact that, like, they're neighbors, like, they just happen to have the same last name. Like, they're not related in any way. Oh. Um, now, this neighbor girl was a couple years older than her, um, but that's, we'll kind of get into it a little bit more, but, like, Norma had, like, some mental disabilities. So, yeah, they're basically on, like, the same level playing together, even though Norma's older. So... On May 11th, 1968, a three-year-old boy was found bleeding and wandering the streets. 
Um, he later informed police that he had been playing with Mary and Norma and that one of them had actually pushed him off of the roof of the air raid shelter that they were playing on. And apparently also that same evening, like, these parents of these three small little girls had contacted the police to complain that both Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their daughters while they were playing. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, when they were questioned about this, like, both of the girls denied having pushed the boy, saying that, like, they had found him bleeding heavily from his head, um, and that he had already fallen when they found him. And then the girls were also questioned about the attempted strangulations, to which Mary denied knowing anything about it. Um, and then Norma, on the other hand, said that Mary had gone to one of the little girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do, do they die? Then she said that Mary put her hands on, on one of the little girl's necks until she started to turn purple. Then another little girl came up and then Mary grabbed her and did the same thing to her. Um, unfortunately, due to their age, however, like neither girl was punished um, for this lawfully. Um, they were basically just given a warning and then sent home to their par- to their parents. Yeah. So... Um, so several days later, on May 25th, 1968, one day before Mary turned 11 years old, um, she strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom in one of the abandoned housing units that I talked about before. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is believed that Mary killed Martin alone, and his body was found later that day by three children who had chosen that building as their playground for the afternoon. Um, Martin was laying on his back with his arms stretched out above his head and aside from a few specks of bloods and some foam around his mouth, like there were literally no signs of violence anywhere on his body. So I guess these kids, when they find him, like they freak out. Okay. And they're like, they're like running outside. Like someone, please come help. Someone, please come help. Well, the first person that like, um, goes to the scene, this guy's name is John Hall. Um, he was a local repairman and he gets to the scene and he starts like trying to give CPR to this little boy, like trying to bring him back to life. And eerily, while he was attempting CPR, both Mary and Norma appeared in the bedroom doorway and were watching him as he tries to save the boy. And he like tells the girls to go away. He's like, Mm -hmm. you girls don't need to be here. Like, get out of here. And the two of them then went to Martin's. Um, aunt's house and told her I think one of your sister's bairns has just had an accident we think it's Martin but we can't tell because there's blood all over him so like they go there and they say this stuff to her but like they're the ones who did this right um so the next day they do an autopsy um and there's they couldn't find any signs of violence on Martin's body Um, the only thing that they were able to conclude from what they had on him was that, like, he'd not been poisoned. Like, that's really all they knew was, like, he died, but nobody poisoned him, so we don't know what's wrong. Right. Um, so, then that same day, on, um, May 26th, which is Mary's birthday now, like, the day the autopsy was done. Uh, she and Norma go and they break into a nearby nursery and they vandalize it and they leave these unsigned notes taking blame for Martin's murder. The note said things like, 
I'm murder, so I may come back. And then another one said, We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. There was another note that said, Fuck off. Fuck off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and Faggot. Okay. And then the last note was very confusing. It said, You are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martin Go Brown. Uh, you better look out. There are murders by Fanny and old faggot you screws. Um, my assumption is Norma wrote that. Yeah, probably. But, however, not knowing for sure, like, where these notes came from, authorities decided that they had to have just been some, um, tasteless childish prank. Like, the new kids had written these notes, obviously. Like, the handwriting was bad, like, I saw them. Um... And, like, it was just, they just assumed that it was just kids trying to be funny or whatever, and it's not funny. This is the common misconception. <coughs> kids are fucking evil. Yeah. Well, then, on May 29th, the girls were both playing this game of chicken, where they, like, were daring each other to do things, and they ended up calling the house of Martin's mother. And they asked her if they could see her son. And when June, who was Martin's mother, replied, like, letting them know that her son is dead, Mary says, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. So, anyway, so a month passes. And then on the afternoon of July 31st, 1968, uh, three-year-old Brian Howe mysteriously disappeared. His parents had last seen him playing outside with one of his siblings, their family's dog, and also Mary and Norma. So, that evening, like, when the kid has not come home yet, like, the the mom's freaking out, and they put together this, like, little search party, and they start looking around for, um, Brian, okay? Mm-hmm. And at 11.10 p.m., his body was found laying between two concrete blocks covered in clumps of weed and grass. Like someone had made an attempt to try to hide mm-hmm. him. Um, so, cyanosis, which is like the discoloration of your lips due to like lack of oxygen, was very evident on his face. Like his like lips and stuff were like blue and purple and all this different stuff. And then there were several scratches on his neck. And there were a broken pair of scissors that were found laying next to his feet. So they do an autopsy on Brian. And it revealed that he had actually died of strangulation and had been dead for about seven and a half hours before they'd found his body. Oh, damn. So they killed him, like... Like, early in the day. So it was apparent to them that his killer had held his nostrils shut while holding his throat with their other hand. Um, And then there were numerous puncture wounds inflicted on Brian's legs prior to his death, which is from the scissors. Um, And there were sections of his hair that had been crudely cut from his head. Um, His genitals had been partially mutilated. Jesus Christ. And a crude attempt had been made to carve the letter M into his stomach. Mary. Hmm. So the coroner determined from this that the killer had to have been a child because 
there was a relatively small amount of force used, like, to create these marks on his body. So, like, they're like, okay, so, obviously this person wasn't super strong, like, had to have been a kid. So, um, they also found numerous fibers on Brian's clothing and shoes, and the fibers did not come from any articles of clothing or blankets that were within his home, and it was concluded that the fibers probably had come from whoever had murdered him. Mm. So, following the discovery of Brian's body, over a hundred detectives were called in to help with this investigation. Um, they knew that they were looking for a kid, but they they don't know which one. So, within two days, all these, like, a hundred and some detectives had interviewed more than 1,200 children. Damn. Yeah. Um, so, on the first day of their interviews, they actually had interviewed um, Mary and Norma. And when they were interviewed, um, they had been interviewed because the witnesses had told them, like, that they had seen the girls playing with Brian, like, before he had died. So they're like, these girls might know something, so we're going to talk to them. Right. And in Norma's initial interview, like, they they noticed that, like, she seemed, like, very, like, nervous. Like, she was, like, trying to, like, cover something up. Right. And, um, but she, like, denied knowing, like, what had gone on. And Mary, on the other hand, like, literally said, like, nothing. Like, they don't she, like, get, wouldn't even speak to like, them. nothing from this girl. Like, she's just kind of, like, sitting there, like, whatever. But, like, both of the girls had admitted that they had been playing with Brian, but they hadn't seen him after lunch. Hmm. So. Hmm. Lion-ass bitches. So, they decide the next day that, you know, we need to talk to these girls again because they know something. Like, they're, they, they have to know something because the way they're acting. So... <clears throat> They question them again, and Mary tells the detective that is questioning her that she did remember seeing um, an eight-year-old boy out playing with Brian. And she tells them who this boy is, whatever, whatever, and that she had actually seen the boy hit Brian. Okay? So she tells them this, and then she tells them that she that the boy was like covered in grass and weeds, like he'd been rolling in a field, like, and she just noticed like he was dirty and whatever, and that she'd also noticed that he had a pair of scissors. And she also stated like I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with him. One of the legs was broken, like the scissors, the oh. the they're like legs of scissors, I guess in England. I don't know, but whatever. So due to this statement, the investigators believed that she was the boy's killer because like at this point, like only the police knew that there were scissors at the crime scene. Like why would she think that she should tell them like, Oh, I saw this kid playing with him and this kid had scissors. Right. So they figured out that Mary was probably the one who did it, but they had to get a confession. Like they can't just, like, arrest her because they think it's it her. So, so on top of that, the boy that she had told them that she had seen with Brian, 
Um, he had actually been at the Newcastle International Airport on the afternoon that Brian had died, and there were multiple people that had seen him there, so, like, they knew that this kid didn't do this to his little boy. Right, he didn't even play with him at all, so she yeah. was just making it up. Yeah. So, just a couple days later, on August 4th, uh, Norma's parents call the police and tell them that their daughter wanted to confess what she knew about Brian's murder. So there's a this detective goes to Norma's house and Norma proceeds to tell him that Mary had shown her how she wanted to strangle Brian and then took her to where she had put his body. So Norma then told him that Mary had confessed to her how she had enjoyed strangling Brian and also told Norma that she had inflicted the scour marks on his stomach with a razor blade which she then hid at the crime scene. And then, so these cops are like, well, we didn't find a razor blade. And Norma's like, well, I can show you. Let's go. So they, she leads them to the crime scene and shows them, like, where the scissors had been laying, which they already knew that because they picked them up. But then she also um, showed them where Mary had hidden the razor blade. So now they have this razor blade that they had no idea had been involved before. Right. So now they know that they have the right kids. Like, they know. Um, and she also made a drawing for them that showed them exactly where the wounds had been on Brian's body. So, like, she knew, like, where he'd been cut. Like, she drew for them, like, where the M was and the stab wounds and whatever. So, the next day, detectives go to Mary's house. And she denied everything that Mary had told them. And stated, like... You're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. So she's 11 years old and she already knows that like she thinks she can get out of it. Right. I mean, she's pretty smart. Yeah. So stupid, but smart. Yeah. So they go next door and they talk to Norma again. And this time she tells them that she was actually there when Mary killed Brian. So, she said that Mary had tried to get her to help him kill her, but, like, she was, like, saying, like, oh, like, come take over, my arms are tired, but Norma took off running and left Mary alone with Brian. So, investigators finally got the evidence that they needed when they examined clothing um, in the girls' homes, and they found that the fibers that they had found on Brian belonged to a dress that was owned by Mary and a skirt that was owned by Norma. So, interestingly enough, they were shocked when they found that the same fibers from Mary's dress were also found on the body of little Martin, who had died a month ahead, or a month ago. Like, Oh, shit. Yeah. So, on August 7th, the day of Brian's funeral... Detectives planned on going and arresting both of the girls, like, after the funeral was over. Because, you know, it's a small community. Like, everybody wants to be there for this funeral. Then they're going to go get these girls and take them in and do what they have to do. Well, the investigator who had been um, the one that was going and talking to the girls said that he saw Mary standing outside of Brian's home. Um, when, Because that's where, like, the funeral procession begins like the they have the casket in the house and they take it out and like they all walk and carry it to where it gets buried mm -hmm. he said that she just stood there like laughing and was like rubbing her hands together the hell yeah so he knew at that point like he's like i need to bring this girl in before she kills someone else 
like, Literally, yeah. yeah. So the eight, at 8 o'clock that evening, both girls were formally charged with Brian's murder. And upon this occurrence, Mary gave a written statement where she admitted that she was there when Brian was murdered, but she claimed that Norma had killed him. And she also wrote in her statement that she and Norma had broken into the Woodland Crescent Nursery after Martin was murdered and that they had left the four handwritten notes that they had found that were left behind. Mm -hmm. So this is when they find out that, like, oh, shit, like, those notes were actually serious. Like, they weren't just a joke. Right. (laughs) So. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. So after their arrest, um, both girls were subjected to psychological evaluations. And the test revealed that Norma was intellectually delayed and was very submissive. So, and then on the other hand, Mary tested to be highly intelligent, cunning, and prone to mood swings. So, the psychiatrist who who evaluated Mary determined that she suffered from psychopathic personality disorder. And one of them even concluded that Mary's social techniques were primitive. And so she was able to, like, automatically, like, deny anything. Like, and, like, they also found, like, that her personality was very, like, manipulated and, or manipulated, manipulative. And that she's prone to violence. Oh, shocker. I'm shocked to hear all this. What? Yeah. Never. So, I actually was able to find, like, a full account of the trial, like, everything that was said and done. Um, but I'm literally only going to give highlights because it was a long, long thing. So, um, both girls were tried at the exact same time, like, one trial. And they both pled not guilty. Okay? So, the defense went to great lengths to, like, try and help Norma. So they're stating that, like, while, yes, like, they're equally culpable in the murders, like, they both were there, they both assisted, whatever, but, and yes, like, Norma's older, but her mental development was actually closer to the age of an eight-year-old. And that Mary was obviously the more dominant of the two girls and had led the situation. Right. So when Norma testified in her own defense, she said... That she did not want to harm either of the boys, and she said that she knew that Mary was prone to violence, and that she had actually um, talked to Mary, like, on different occasions about, like, attacking and killing, like, small children and stuff, Um, but, like, that was, like, all, that's all the farther she thought it was going to go was in talking about it. She didn't know that, like, Mary was going to actually start doing this stuff. Right. Well, yeah, who would think? Um, And Norma actually also let them know that Mary had actually demonstrated to her, like, how children could be killed and even admitted that in both the murders, her role was to just be the lookout. So, like, Mary was going to kill him and Norma was just supposed to watch for other people coming. During Mary's testimony, she actually told the court that she and Norma had had been, like, daring each other to um, call Martin's mother about seeing his body. So, like, they found out that, like, they were also, like, torturing the family afterwards. Like, it wasn't just they were killing the bodies and trying to hide. Like, they were continuing. They thought it was funny to, like, rub it. Yeah. Rub it in. Yeah. 
And she also admitted um, when she made her statements um, to investigators that she knew that the murders would get Norma put away. So, like, (laughs) her plan was actually to get Norma put away. Like, she'd been planning this probably the whole time to turn it around and blame it on Norma so Norma would get locked up. Yeah. So, um, Mary... a little asshole. (laughs) So, Mary did claim in her testimony that Norma had been the one who'd killed Brian. And she, like, quote-unquote, like, was just standing there, like, looking down and she couldn't move. She goes, it was as if someone had, like, glued me to the ground and I couldn't move. That's what Mary said? That's what she said, yeah. Like, she'd been, she was stuck watching Norma kill this boy. Whatever, you little psycho. Um... Mary then also said that Norma had encouraged Brian to lay down, telling him that the candy lady would come with sweets before proceeding to strangle him with her bare hands. So basically, that's probably what Mary did. She's probably like, oh, this lady's going to come by with sweets if you just lay here. Like, that's probably what Mary did. Let's be real. Like, I don't I know, know. This is terrible and I shouldn't laugh. But like, what the fuck? Yeah. And another thing Mary said was that she could tell that Norma was using a lot of force because her fingertips and nails were going white. So she was probably sitting there squeezing this boy's neck, looking at her own hands, but then, like, saying it was Norma. So, um, she also told them that she didn't tell the authorities about what she had watched Norma do because she was afraid and that she didn't want to betray her friend. So, they're sitting there thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe Norma did something, like, possibly. But, then Norma's mom testifies, okay? Oh, shit. So, um, Norma's mom testifying kind of showed the courts a little bit more about what Mary was actually like. Um, because apparently, on one occasion, uh, I can't, I don't remember what her name was. I want to say it was, like, Catherine or something like that. I should have wrote it down, but I didn't. But so she's saying that like her husband had had to punch Mary in the shoulder because she, they had walked in and found her strangling Susan, which was one of Norma's little sisters. And like, she would not let go of Susan. So he ended up punching Mary to like get her to let go. Mm -hmm. So this is like, you know, this jury is sitting there like and she's saying that like this kid like is just not right right literally <sighs> yeah so after all this stuff and all these different people had come in these witnesses and stuff talking about what they'd seen and different things like they even like had interviewed the guy that had like seen mary and norma in the doorway um that had been doing the cpr on the other kid um i can't remember his name it's in here somewhere the guy that was doing CPR. the guy that was doing CPR yeah mm-hmm. so like they'd interviewed him in the trial and all these different mm-hmm. things so after deliberation um Norma was completely acquitted of all the charges okay like they're like this kid like yes like she shouldn't have been there but like we can't hold her responsible for it right however um Mary was cleared of the murder but she was convicted of manslaughter um, and it was on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Like, I don't know. 
this little bitch knew what she was doing. I don't know. But anyway, so I'm going to read this because diminished responsibility is this very like interesting concept. Diminished responsibility is something that they have in England, um, which is actually, I guess, kind of good in a way because it is meant to ensure that people that are being convicted of crimes who are mentally ill in like some kind of way, like they are able to then get the treatment they need rather than just being thrown in a jail and forgotten about. Yeah. Okay. So, so then Mary is then sentenced um, to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Like okay. mine were at Her Majesty's yeah. pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> pleasure. Um, essentially, like, giving her a sentence of imprisonment without a definite end. Like, they don't know, like, when they're going to let her out, but, like, she's going to be held until Her Majesty decides that she can leave. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, at this time in history, it was literally always boys who had been sent to these reform schools. Um... So, like, figuring out what to do with Mary was an issue, like, from the beginning. Like, she started out at a couple different, like, reprimand homes and then ended up getting sent to the Red Bank Secure Unit, um, which there were 24 inmates there, but she was literally the only girl. Okay. Um, And later on, like, Mary claims that... She was sexually assaulted by a member of the staff, and then also several of the inmates um, during her time had done things to her as well. Damn. Yeah. When Mary turned 16, they transferred her to um, Moore Court Open Prison, which it's like kind of like how um, in like Orange is the New Black, like how there's like bunks and people would sleep in them and like talk to people, do whatever. It was kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and when she was there, like, they, she took a course on, like, how to become a secretary. So, like, she was learning, like, how to type and do these different things. But when she was 17, she made headlines again when she and another inmate managed to escape. Um, they found her a few days later, like, she had dyed her hair blonde and, like, was, you know, trying to disguise who she was. But her only punishment for escaping was she lost her privileges for 28 days. Well, fast forward a few years, like Mary's now 23, okay? And she had served at that point, you know, 11 years, which is half of her life because she was 11 when she committed these murders. Like, you know, they released her from prison. And they grant her anonymity because like everybody knew who she was like it was a big deal at the time like she'd killed these little boys and she was a kid herself so they give her anonymity so that like they give her a new name and she starts this new life um under this like whole new identity whatever whatever and then about four years after she'd been released like mary has a daughter who, because of the fact that Mary had anonymity, like, was able to, like, not know, like, what had happened, like, with her mom until she was 14 years old. Once someone had discovered who Mary was and then found out where they lived and, like, had come, like, was, like, threatening them and doing all these things. So, like, they, like, Mary puts a blanket over their heads and they escape and they go to the cops and, like... After they get away, like, Mary ends up going to court, and then she receives anonymity for life. 
Um, and it's for her and her daughter. So basically, like, nobody can ever know, like, who she is now and who her daughter is, like, for the rest of their lives. And due to the fact that their identities are now hidden, um, I don't really know that much about them, like, beyond this, except for that Mary is apparently now a grandmother, um, due to the fact that in 2003... Um, she'd gone to court and had the anonymity extended for her granddaughter. So there is a few things that I know just because like Mary has like done some interviews, but like they like don't show her like what she looks like in them. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably do the whole thing where they like change her voice and stuff. Yeah. Um, but she no longer claims that she didn't commit the murders. Like she openly admits that she did it. Um, and she doesn't believe that she was wrongly convicted. Like she knows she deserved it. Um, and she even freely admits that the abuse that she suffered when she was a child was no excuse for her crimes. So like she's, she knows she was a fucked up kid. Yeah. She knows. So apparently I found this kind of interesting in, um, 1998, Mary actually worked with author Gitta Serena and wrote a book that was called Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell. Oh. And apparently in this book, she gives a lot of details as to, like, the abuse that she survived at the hands of her mother and, like, her mother's clients. Mm-hmm. And, like, this book also includes, like, interviews from, like, Mary's relatives, like, some of her old friends, um, and, like, different, like, professional people that like had on all these different people like had known her like before she committed the crimes like during the time she committed the crimes and then some that were like after she'd been in prison so like it gives like this complete story of her life which i kind of want to read it now yeah that sounds kind of interesting yeah um but i do want to say though that i really don't know how i feel about the story because like i feel bad for her like she had a lot of shit that, like, people, like, nobody cared for her. I do feel bad for her, but, like, still she killed these kids. Like, right. Like, that's the thing. Like, I feel bad for her, but at the same time, like, I feel like I shouldn't. And almost part of me feels like, too, at 11 years old, as terrible as it is that she killed these kids, she may have never gotten out of that if she hadn't done those things. Yeah. And been arrested and... Had to like turn her own life around while she was in prison. Yeah, like it's terrible that that's what had to happen. But also maybe that got her out of that life, right? Because like, if she hadn't done those things, like she would have been stuck with those parents probably forever, and she might have ended up dead. Right. Like if her mom dropped her out the window, like. Yeah, her mom sounds like a fucking. And I watched an interview um, where, like, somebody had talked to her mom and her mom, like, denied the whole thing and said, like, that had never happened. But she did not make eye contact, like, with the camera or anything, like, at all. Like, she was just, like, kind of, like, acting like she was hiding, like. Pathetic bitch. But I believe it. Like, I will never, ever be that person who says they don't believe a child. Like, never. Because it sucks. Yeah. Like, being told that somebody doesn't believe you when you've been living through all this, like, horrible stuff is hard. 
that was the story of Mary Bell. Mary Bell. Mary Bell. Mary Bell. Well, guys, like, we would like to know what you think about today's episode. Yes, I would love to hear everyone's opinion. So, um, if you want to let us know, like, you can get a, send us an email at beautyandthescreams at gmail.com. Yes. Yes, yes. And, like, every week I'm going to put links to all our social medias in the bio along with links to Jennifer's Etsy shop where you can get a couple different, um... Stickers. Stickers, yeah, to support the podcast if you want. Put it on your car, put it on your, um, oh my god, your clipboard at work. I have stickers all over my work mm-hmm. clipboard. Like, I don't know, just put it somewhere on a mirror. I have a bunch of stickers on my vanity. Yeah. So, anyway, um, well, we're going to get out of here. So, yeah. See you guys in a couple of weeks. See you later. Bye.